Okay, episode 110, we go in and presents Happy Holidays. We got, what, Saturday morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, here with Sankofa, man. Like, sorry to hear about you missing your morning run today, man, with with bronchitis and all, man. But how you feeling, man? How the holidays treating you? Uh, holidays have been good and chill, you know? Like, I appreciate the opportunity not having to rush my sons to, like, wake up, get breakfast, get into school and all that stuff. So just having the opportunity to move at a more chill speed means the world to me. Yeah, that Plus morning routine. been an opportunity. Yeah, man. Whew. Yeah, w- where do you guys lose the most time in getting from bed to school? Because I feel like for me, it's the socks. Like the kids, the kids are so slow at putting their socks on. Uh, I would say... Like the youngest wakes himself up like six o'clock. He's coming downstairs sneakily, right? Because that's the earliest we're allowed. We let him out of his room. But our middle schooler, you know, the most time is lost in trying to wake him up. Mm. Yeah. Because like, like he's, he's big. Like he's now taller than his mom. You know, he's 12 years old. He's got, he's probably going to be taller than me. And I'm six, four, but like, I used to be able to pick him up out of bed. Now even trying to roll him over in bed is a task because he's strong. <laughs> so I'm like, you know what, man? I'm going to go downstairs, uh, get breakfast ready for you. Uh, maybe mom can wake you up when she's, uh, when she's at your door or whatever. But uh, yeah, probably trying to wake him up is the longest part. And I'm super fortunate in that the drive to his school is like 10 minutes. Like I drop him off. He takes the bus home mm. and our youngest comes to school with me. And because both of my sons went to the school, which I teach, which is just pre K and K. And then they would walk over to the other school for first through fifth grade. So like transportation wise, it works out pretty cleanly. So it's not transportation. It's waking up our oldest son. God, yeah, I could see that. My my oldest is twelve now too, and and it's getting harder and harder. He likes to wake. He likes sleeping in a lot more now than he did like as a ten or nine year old. Yeah, big time, man, big time. That's tough, man. And 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 you know when you think about you know that you're you're a teacher, um, I'm a teacher. You know, thinking about other educators out there like Wordsworth, it's like you know you're kind of beholden to really strict schedules at times. And then you look at hip hop and you can really, like you said early on in in the conversation before we started recording is like, you can really create your own rules in your own world. Like how do you balance the world of being an educator and an artist at the same time? Well, um, like Zilla Rocka said, a lot of it is time management. Like when it comes to like getting in like my runs are super important to me, right? They help me relax. They help keep me healthy because I'm certainly not getting any younger. So like set my alarm for 4.50 on uh, weekdays. Go for a run, come home, get breakfast ready, try to wake up my oldest, take a shower, you know, get him to school and all that. But it's all the in-between times. And I think through the years, just having this, this workflow of like, oh, here's how I'm going to build my Google Drive. I'm going to have this folder for this year. And then this year, there's going to be this producer's name in another folder. And that's going to have all the songs we're working on. And then just like over break right now, I've been running inventory on the projects I'm working on and looking to drop next year, as well as going into 2025. And it's just being organized and having a system. And through the years of doing it, 
and having consistent collaborators like Tali Rodriguez, uh, amazing producer, uh, rapper. He's also my engineer. So for most of my stuff, like he understands the shorthand with which I save files and arrange them all so that he's able to, you know, get through them and handle all the engineering without there being a bunch of missed opportunities. And then have an opportunity to work with all these other like, like new collaborators. Like I got a project coming up with uh, surf and basically he makes all these super plush uh, productions and stylistically, it's not something I typically go down like an avenue of, but it reminded me of, like AZ, like do or die type stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's basically my AZ inspired project. And so with that one, I'm explaining to him, it's like, look, he, um, He'd mentioned he was getting ready to drop a beat tape. So I just hit him up randomly. I was like, hey, if you ever need any verses on anything, you know, if you want some random appearance on one of your beat tapes, let me know. And he's like, well, um, actually, I was going to hit you up about potentially building on something, but you're always so busy. I didn't want to, you know, cut into your time. And of that, the project was born. I just got the artwork for it last night. Going to tape uh, Ben Buck Beatbox uh, from Speaker Bump Records. He's going to be making the tapes. And it's just like constantly having this book. Like I had to get a notebook and on each page of the notebook and I'm looking at it right now, it's got a chem dog Cordo sticker on him. He's a dope rapper and producer out of Fort Wayne. Like each page is a project. Mm. And so I have, if the project has a title, but I have the title, it'll have the name of the producer. Cause I try to go like one producer per project, you know, keep it, uh, keep the continuity that way. And then who's on the art and then the names of the beats and the names of the songs and then going on the next page. And I have like a list of like what I need to do with that project. I need to choose like, is it in post? If it's in post, when it comes back from post, I need to choose the singles, uh, figure out what physical format it's going to be on. I'm working on a project with eight Greg two crazy, amazing producer. And that one's going to vinyl. The vinyl master is almost done. Vinyl takes forever. So I know that's going to be a late next year project. And just going through this list and then determining like which song, which artist I'm going to reach out to, to make the visual components of the music. And then which songs are going to go to streaming because instead of just dumping the whole thing on streaming, I'd rather just put a single here and there. And then whenever I feel like it, putting the rest of the album on there. Is there so kind like of... going back to like the four? Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, man. Go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll save it. All right, because basically, like, I come from the era, and we talked about this, you know, before we started recording or whatever, like, where internet access didn't mean you could access music. It meant you could communicate about music on message boards, but there wasn't that, wasn't the high-speed internet access or whatever. So what's important to me with music is making sure there's a physical component of it, because music has become so disposable because it is instantly accessible. And so to try and counteract that and to try to, because basically I'm doing the stuff that I, as a fan, would, did, and will appreciate. And so I got tapes coming out. I got CDs coming out. I got vinyl coming out. And it is always my hope that I get the physical media out to people before, you know, it hits Bandcamp and before people hear it on Bandcamp. Because I want to make sure that people were able to experience music the same way that I did in that 
I had to like, I saw that J. Rue come clean video on the OMTV raps. And I keep going to the record store where it had like the three rows of tapes and one row of CDs for the rap section at the mall. And like, keep wondering, when's the CD coming? When's the CD coming? And then yeah. get to listen to it and experience it that way because it meant something because it was harder to obtain. I mean, it's the whole psychology behind like Nike's limited, limited edition releases. Like everyone's, everyone's jumping over themselves trying to get this hard to obtain shoe. And why? Because of the exclusivity. Now, I'm certainly not Nike, but I understand the importance of having something that is tangible. But like as a, as a sneakerhead, a recovering sneakerhead, I also recognize that with that, that was more like an addiction type thing where it's like, okay, I bought the shoes, you know, and I'd order them online. And then by the time they came, I was like, not even that interested about them. Mm. So like a year or so ago, I got to the point where I was like, you know, the money I'm spending each month on shoes, and it was a lot. I was like, instead of buying, you know, this indie brand shoe, because I want to support indie brands, so it was like Sia or Clear Weather or Sneak, you know, dope stuff. I was like, what if I just spend that money on my music and like working with my friends? Because otherwise, I'm going to have, like, I have stacks of shoes. I got so many shoes, like, I forget I have them. And then I open up the shoebox and I'm like, oh man, look at this surprising treasure. I could spend that X amount of dollars per month on shoes that basically sit there gathering dust being beautiful. I can open the shoebox and inhale the, you know, the gorgeous leather smells and luxuriousness of it all. Or I can put that same money into making music with my friends and we have something to show for it. And I'm actually building as part of a community as opposed to just getting something for myself for that temporary dopamine hit. Right. And like you said, too, like how that music really is like going to be like your legacy, you know, like, you know, besides besides the change that you that you that you share that you make, you know, in a song like Park Pavilions, you know, in the classroom, like the music is another part of that legacy that you leave behind. Um, so I, I feel like that's like a really important decision and and you know how, how does your family especially like now that you you know you have a teenager that um you know as they gravitate more and become more aware of music and the world around them as they you know become you know teenagers and young adults like how do your kids feel about your music and and you know your family um my wife is incredibly supportive uh like we've each got our passions like she's got all these fancy high-end plans like grow tents in the basement, light timers, humidifiers, fans, all that stuff. Like that's her thing. And my thing is rap. And our sons, like I would listen to rough versions of my songs because I like to record a song, then listen to it and see where I can make adjustments, like take notes or whatever. And usually that'd be in the car. And my sons would be in the car because I'm like Mr. Mom transporting the dudes back and forth. So they're hearing my music. And then asking, what does this mean? What does that mean? And so they're, they're receptive that way, but they're more like a captive audience that way. Then again, they're in the back seat, you know, talking to each other about video games or, you know, uh, a particular Lego design or an illustration they're making, something like that. So there's an awareness. And my youngest is now wearing some of the, like, I used... Whenever I'd make Sankofa merch, 
I would go to like Target clearance rack or whatever and pick up some blanks because I had friends locally who would print my stuff up and I'd pick blanks that would fit, you know, my family, my wife and my sons. And so they'd have like if I was busting out T-shirts or whatever, I'd see if I could find a hoodie and then get that to my guide for uh, to silkscreen it. So like my wife and my sons would have some form of merch that otherwise wasn't available. That's cool. And it's kind of dope that my uh, like my youngest, who's now eight, like he's rocking the shirts that my oldest was rocking back then. Nice. You know, so they got like they got like this throwback St. Copa merch. I'm like, oh, man, I forgot about that because, you know, I've had so many logos and variations and flips that it's been hard to keep track. But seeing like. Oh, there's that Goodwill flip on a, a red T-shirt for my youngest because red's his favorite color. And the smaller shirt I could get was way too big for him when I ran that print. You know, it's a cool form of time travel. Now, I wouldn't necessarily say they're fans because they're more interested in, like, video game music. Like, they'll be talking to Alexa or, what is it, Echo? Like, yeah, play play this and they'll name some obscure tune for a video game score. But they understand that I rap and that it's important to me. And I've had conversations with them about, you know, this is something I do because I want to do it. Yeah. And that I get fulfillment from being able to do it and not necessarily looking for like external validation. I get to make dope stuff with my friends and that's what's important to me. No, and I think that's one of the most valuable lessons you could teach kids. Because, I mean, honestly, I have the same conversations with my kids about the podcast. I'm like, you know, we don't we do not do the numbers of other podcasts, you know, no sponsors. But, mm-hmm. you know, I love talking about hip-hop. I love talking to, to artists about their creative process. And, you know, um, and, and, and honestly, a lot of the podcasts that I've done have led to other amazing projects or conversations, whether it's talking to one guy who then, you know, introduces me to someone else and, you know, you go down that rabbit hole or it leads to a book project. It's like, you know, the, um, and even just the, the dopamine of having a, a great conversation about music, you know, um, cause especially like, you know, you're in, you're in Fort Wayne. Um, I'm in Charlottesville and California kind of split in time, but like, it's hard to find people who, you know, face to face who actually love hip hop music and, and not talking mm-hmm. about like Kendrick and J Cole who are great, but like who go below the surface. Like if I say tone deaf, they know who I'm talking about, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, it's always great to have this, like what, what's the scene like man for you in, in Fort Wayne. And um, cause, cause coming from Charlottesville, it was like, it's a very limited scene out here in Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia, Richmond's much, much more lively. Um, sure. But you now know, that was like Neptune's Timberland, like mad skills and all that. Right. Yeah. Cause you got, you got, you got skills in, in Richmond and then you go a little bit more like towards Virginia beach and that's when you get Timberland and, um, and, and the okay. Neptunes, but, um, it's so spread out. And then you kind of go up North more towards like Northern Virginia, Manassas, and it's kind of more like folded into the DC scene almost. Huh. Yeah, uh, as far as the local scene, I was super fortunate in that when I moved to Fort Wayne, which I want to say is like 2000, 2001, like there was a scene that was happening. And by a scene, I mean like a hip hop scene. 
by a hip hop scene, I mean, there were crews of graffiti cats, you know, there were B-boys and B-girls, you know, there were multiple DJs. And another huge component is there were like three promoters working on actively booking and making things happen in town. And so I came into a time where like, it may not have been the golden era because I don't have the historical perspective to look anywhere earlier than when I first moved to Fort Wayne, but like this opportunity to just be amongst this huge community. And the thing about like B-boys and B-girls, like, I don't know what the extent of your interactions have been, but man, that is a tight knit community. Yeah. Yeah. Like they are there for each other. And the thing I love about going to one of those events, like uh, my friend Evelyn, she put on an event, uh, nostalgic grooves. And just to see like these B-boys and B-girls who would travel from like all over the country just to be at this thing in Fort Wayne not so long ago and like how fiercely they would battle each other. But as soon as the battle was done, like the love was evident. Like they, they were out for blood. And then when that beat cut out, you know, it was all love and like, that's magical. Yeah. Now as time has gone on, you know, just like with everything else, People get older, they get their families, their responsibilities, they move on. And, you know, some people hang around and I just happen to be one of those people who've hung around. And so as for what the local community is right now, I couldn't really speak on that because I'm more off in my own little world of being like family, teacher, uh, crafting my own little world of words with my friends. Yeah, when I when I wrote the Pumpkinhead book, um, and you know they're talking about that New York scene in the 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 mid mm -hmm. to late '90s, and you know it's guys like Breeze Everflowin and Gene Gray and and Poison Pen and all these guys talking to, and, and and girls talking about like, um, you know we would break night, you know we're freestyling through the night, you know we're freestyling mm -hmm. at this park, and then we're going to this showcase, and then we're drinking and smoking, and then we're going here, like there's this whole like. Man, we just did whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted, and then you yeah, know, man. kid got you know, kids start coming to the picture, and 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 families, and it's like I can't do this all the time. Like that, that was a hard thing. I think um, even guys I talk to now in interviews, they're like, man, I miss the days of just freestyling through the night, like in in my basement, you know, with with my with my crew. Like um, mm -hmm. that, that transition can be hard sometimes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, by the same token, it's also necessary. Right. I mean, exactly. there are some people who are going to be able to, like, you know, be Peter Pan or whatever and just keep on doing whatever they're doing. And I'm fortunate and thankful that I've been able to carve out this space where I'm able to pursue my passions, continue working on my craft amidst all the rest of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't trade it for a thing because I think about the days in college, I would, you know, be talking to artists, you know, you know, 2 a.m., you know, about about projects or mm -hmm. about let's do this. And, you know, I was doing all sorts of crazy stuff in terms of like interviews at all times of the day, um, you know, making beats whenever I wanted. But like I wouldn't trade yep. all I wouldn't trade all that, you know, for the, the you know, having a family and, and all the, the growth that I've had since, you know, being like a, a knucklehead 20 year old. That's that's the phase that everyone has to go through, though. Right. And I mean, that, that reminds me of like when I was back in college, like I, my community, like I was Minnesota, right? My community wasn't 
there was no rap community. When I was in high school, there was one other dude, Sean Kapishki, who listened to rap in my high school. Like that was when Cypress Hill's first album came out. That can give you an idea of the time frame. It came out on tape. And so he and I are the only ones talking about it. Everyone else is making fun of us. And now rap is such a such a huge integral part of the culture, whether it's, you know, commercial jingles, like uh, what, what the, um, the McDonald's, I'm loving it, dude. Right. Folk rapper guy. Like all this stuff is so commonplace, but like going to college, like I met another rapper. Now, back then his name was Diverse. But uh, now he goes by Agape. He does uh, Christian outreach rap stuff. And, you know, kudos to him. Like, he worked with Ant on a project or two, you know, because he's like Minneapolis. And just, like, hanging out with him and doing what I later found out was called freestyling. I had no idea what it was. I didn't know what it was called. Like, And then I was like, man, this is really cool. And then later I find out, oh, I was freestyling. I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm having fun with my friend. Yeah. Oh, and uh, before I forget, like you mentioned Poison Pen, and I uh, every time I hear his name, it reminds me of Scribble Jam because I remember the battle, and it will forever stick in my head. When when he said, uh, I don't even know who he's battling, but he said something along the lines of, uh, "You remind me of a broken vacuum cleaner. You suck for no reason." <laughs> and so. Uh, Props to Poison Pen for that line, because like that line in that moment, like I don't know if it stuck with anyone else, but I wanted to make sure to give him his props and just to further illustrate how small the world is. Like I'm working on a project with Chumzilla. Oh man, yeah. Right, and like last summer, Chumzilla emailed me a link to a folder with 80 beats in it. Like we we communicated via DM here and there. But like, I got this whole folder. I was like, um, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. So I recorded one song and sent it back to him because I work pretty quickly when I'm inspired and I'm pretty much always inspired. So it's a matter of time and energy. So I sent it back to him. I called it proof of concept. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, so um, should we make more? He's like, yes, that's why I sent you the folder. So I went through like half the folder because the folder was shot full of crazy beats and selected i don't know 14 16 whatever reached out to my friends made those songs and that song or that album should come out early next year it was actually recorded when my sons were at summer camp oh wow so like like i joked when i posted a photo of them that my uh my album should be executive produced by solomon farm day camp <laughs> because Getting... i would i would drive them up drop them off come home like right upstairs because i write at my dining room table go downstairs move my chromebook into my usb mic you know and get everything set up for my uh engineer tali rodriguez's recommendations and record everything i could make sure i got some lunch and then go pick them up and then repeat the process and by that time we recorded an album but like, that's how small the world is. All I had to do was keep sticking around and keep doing what I do and like follow through with what I'm going to do. And then suddenly I'm getting this beat folder from Chumzilla that's got a gazillion beats in it. And that wouldn't have happened without Twitter. Man, that's amazing, man. You know, 
Here, here's putting it out there, man. Too that I hope you that I hope Poison Pen jumps on a on a verse there, man. Because Chum and Poison Pen have always sounded incredible together, man. And I'd love to hear you guys, you know, on a song together too. Well, as far as like, I don't know how much is supposed to be like officially out there, but as far as I know, Chum's working on some producer projects, perhaps, and maybe that is when it will come to be because like, our stuff is deep into post. Gotcha. Like, so you're last done. I heard the, last I heard, the final components for that track would be, uh, or for that project, which is called Impossible Bottle Service. Uh, my man Shane Joinus is doing the artwork, does some uh, amazing collage work. But he's, um, but uh, Chumzilla is like locked in the idea of where he wants the scratches and all that. Nice. Like, I got to tell you, like, the, the little bit of stuff I heard that he's run through post so far, oh, man. Like the upper, and I, I know I keep going back to gratitude, opportunity, you know, thankfulness and all that. But like, I get to do this, man. Between the rest of my life, I get to work with all these amazingly talented people making something that clearly you can tell by my vocal tone, you know, makes me very excited. Yeah. And like, just the up, like, it keeps happening. That's why next year I'm probably going to be dropping like an album a month. Because I had that many opportunities. Like, that's my goal in 2025, is to have a poster from 2024 where each month has the artwork from a release from 2024. Nice. That's amazing. And, that's, and, it's, and it's eminently doable, too. It's not like I have to do a whole bunch of stuff to get to that point. That's the beauty, but too, just, of, of collaboration today. You don't have to be... Right you know, traveling to to Miami no. to record this or California to record this, like everything can be done, you know, on your schedule. It's like, you know, work it work work from home, man. You know, like that asynchronous schedule you can you can record when the kids mm -hmm. are asleep or you know, on the weekend. Like Wordsworth was saying he wakes up at six AM on Saturdays and he knocks out his his features and any kind of vocals he needs to do for his projects, but like he's able to get stuff done before anyone else is even awake in his house. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's 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 so dope. And like I said, just by virtue of sticking around and continuing to do things, I then have the opportunity to do even more things. And 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 really when you look at doing at being as prolific as you are, like how do you how do you, you know, how do you ensure that quality, man? Cuz that's like something super impressive about the projects you release is like there's no filler with what you're doing. You know, you look at your your latest release um, bleeding of the golden goose like there's no filler tracks there's no like you know it's it's eight tracks but you know five of them are instrumentals and two of them are skits and there's like one song you mm -hmm. know or, or each yeah. song is you know 16 bars and you know it's like these are full songs um you know cool features but like the beats are fleshed out like everything is official like how do you balance that you know that quality control with being as prolific as you are um, well, first, I got to thank my collaborators, because like for Bleeding of the Golden Goose, like Damo, the great the producer, he sent me the beats and I recorded to him. And then I got him all the components on Google Drive. And then he sent them off because he sent them off to his guy, uh, Cody Morales, who is the engineer who put it all in post and added a bunch of instrumentation. Because Damo the Great was one of the two rappers that fronted a band out of Detroit called the Prime Eights, and I'm pretty sure, and I think Cody was the guitarist. 
Don't quote me on it. But once it went to post, you know, it's trusting collaborators to do what they do. I know Damo knows what he's doing. He knows Cody knows what he's doing. So I trust him to make the right choices. And, you know, what, what came from the things that I sent them is so much better than what I sent them. Now, as far as from my end, like making sure that I'm not just dropping some, you know, something to say that I did it. It's, it's having that ability to be honest with myself and like, you know, that's not it. That's not it. Cause I'm not, I don't have friends beside me who are like over my shoulder, like giving me advice. I had those friends, you know, like when I recorded my first song with casualty, you know, back in Sweden, like he would guide me. He would give me that advice. He would be blunt with me. John Doe, same thing. Like I recorded my second and third songs with him. He would be blunt with me. He would give me the advice. And at that point, I was so hard-headed, you know, because I thought everything I was doing was incredible that I didn't want to listen to that stuff. But years pass, and I start absorbing those past words into my present works. So I'm like, okay, how can I adjust this? And then just like Jeff Speck, uh, rapper from the Soviets, crazily dope rapper. Love that dude's work. But uh, as he said in conversations he and I had, like always being a student and forever being a student. And I don't want to step into a project and do something half-assed. I remember reading a tweet somewhere where someone's like, you know, I don't want to be an excellent worker at my job. I want to do what is expected of me. You know, when it comes to rap, I want to do what I think I am capable of. Yeah. And when I get, when I get down to the basement and I start recording my songs on this madman old desk with like my blankets and foam and all that other stuff behind me. Like when I envision the way that other rappers, other musicians, other works inspired me is when I feel like I am able to channel that energy and then I can give what I feel is my best effort. Like I don't ever want to do anything. I don't want to like, I can compromise in the rest of my life, right? And referring to a previous part of it, recognizing that there are going to be times when what I record isn't going to be exactly precise, but if it maintains that emotionality and is able to communicate that moment, that is the power to me, and that is where I go with it. No, that, that, that's amazing, man, like following those instincts and just letting, letting the art kind of guide you. Yeah, and the great thing about recording at home is like, I can, I can do a take where I'm like, I'm, I'll try it sing-songy. I'll try it my angry rap voice. I'm going to try changing it up to this, changing it up to that, and having that opportunity to experiment because I'm not here to make the same song over and over again. I know how to make that song. Now, there are some songs from like way back early on. I can't make those anymore because I'm not that angry like I'm going to show the world person. I'm a grown-up, man. I've lived life. There's a lot of childlike glee in what drives and motivates me, but I'm not that, I'm going to show you, oh, yeah. So it's like I'm going to take those opportunities to stretch and see where I can go. Mm. And what's really dope to me, like one of my, one of my favorite songs on uh, my project for January, which is produced by Tally Rodriguez, uh, is called 13 Wings. And at the end of 13 Wings, like the beat drops out, 
or most of the beat drops out and it's just like the sample and it's my vocals and it almost feels like a like a ministry or nine inch nails type of song and like even telling you about that now like i'm getting goosebumps because that's the stuff that drove me that motivated me that fueled me that tapped into something of me back when i was impressionable enough to listen to music and be like damn now i listen to music and i appreciate the hell out of craftsmanship but as far as being able to like reach that point of emotionality that when i was in high school or early college days like that's not there anymore but if i'm able to tap into that and tap into the concept of the craftsmanship that like ace cannons or you know, Death Sea or Zilla Rocker or like whoever, Milk, you know, the stuff that they do and then roll with that, some dope's going to happen. Now, however it is received, I have no control over that. I have control over what I do, what I put into it, get it to my friends and do the best that I can to see that it gets out there, recognizing that resources are limited, time is limited, attention is limited. When you look at those factors, I mean, do you have like, like metrics for success? Because I mean, you know, you see like how, you know, Instagram ads, you know, Twitter ads, you know, different forms of marketing, you know, can pay off in terms of like maybe immediate engagement. But I don't know about I don't know about long term sustainability there. But like, how do you judge success of projects when you look at like, you know, not taking out these huge ad buys or, you know, you're not you're not saying Let's get in. The, let's get in the van and and go across all fifty states. Mm-hmm. You know, because you know you got you, you got class on Monday. You know, so like, how do yep. you how do you look at the success of what you're doing? You know, in terms of like it getting out there, but also just like that personal fulfillment and and enjoyment and that that you get out of it. You know, how do you balance all of that to really say, okay, um, bleeding of the golden goose is is a success? Because um, sometimes I mean, even just getting it out there is is a success in and of itself. Hmm. Um, first off, I think as far as metrics of success, I think an important factor for me to keep in mind is that I am small. I am small. I do limited releases. I'm going to press 50 tapes or, you know, press 50 CDs, make 50 tapes. Like with the A Greg Two Five Mugs of Doom LP, like I, I'll have a hundred records, which will be a huge release for me. But I stay small, and so I don't. I used to worry about inventory. I used to just want to like give things away, like because back in the day, like I was making CDs, like I had to buy five hundred CDs because they were like glass mastered. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now everyone like Black Thought and everyone man like Near Mint that does a bunch of like Stove God and you know Boldy stuff like. They have CDs and they're burned CDs, man. Yeah. And like the whole, the whole metric of success there, like what is professionalism? What is acceptable? What is industry standard changed to the point where like I press up, I make 50 CDs. If I sell them dope, like my most important thing is making sure that when I do a project, everyone involved with that project from the engineer to the graphic designer to whomever else you know, to people who had guest verses on there, or DJs or whatever, the producer, they get their copies first. Yeah. And then after that, I, I set aside like five for myself, just in case I happen to do a live show, which is more and more rare as time goes on. And then just put the rest up for sale. Now, as far as my metric of success 
beyond the mentality of reminding myself to stay humble and that I am small and that I don't want like widespread success would mean I would have to do things. I don't think I'm, I don't, I don't want to do like if I'm getting pitchfork reviews and I'm getting like Brooklyn vegan or whatever, like when I start getting that press, I'm like, it goes beyond me. I want to stay small. And I know that sounds counterintuitive because I really love sharing my work, which is why I make stuff is so I can share it because there's that childlike glee of like, look what I did. Look what I did. Look what I did. Look what my friends and I did. But my metric of success, and this goes back to my friends, is I got to make something dope with my friends. I had fun making something dope with my friends. As to how it was received, that's out of my hands. I have done what I can do. My friends have done what they can do. And we have made something. And that is what counts. Right. No, that's huge, man. You know, and, and how do you really channel that storytelling? Like, you know, when you look at a song like Park Pavilions, you know, when you look at like what what you're communicating there and just what a dope song that is um, and really incorporating your own life and experiences and, and, and your classroom experiences and students into the into the, the rhymes. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, um, incredible listen like Park Pavilion is one of my favorite songs off Bleeding of the Golden Goose you know when you look at songs like that like how, how do those songs really go from like idea to finished product well I think specifically for uh, Park Pavilions like I had started I was going through some uh, pieces of paper that are written stuff on and you know usually I don't do that usually I like to start like brand new like i'll sit with the beat and see what the beat calls calls from me but one of the pieces of paper i had was an envelope for an invitation to that particular kid's graduation party Mm. and so that then that then called the memory of being asked by another friend to meet up with these kids and it was during that same that same span of time in the summer that one of my friends who I just communicated with like the day before on Insta messenger killed himself. Oh, wow. And so like, you know, when I'm saying, you know, going to the graveyard uh, and I don't even remember the rest of it, you know, that was someone I knew who like shocked the whole circle of friends that he just like, he decided life was no longer for him. You know, so all of these things came based off of me having this envelope that was the invitation for my friend's child's graduation party. And then I like to listen to beats and see what beats call from me. And when I listen to that beat, like I'm, I'm, I'm still in that, that emotional, like sappy thing, like melancholy is going to call to me, you know, darkness is going to call to me like all the same cornball stuff, like the angry music, the, the sad and angry music and all that. So when I listen to that beat, and I had that envelope in front of me, it, it all converged to make that song because those were all parts of my moment or parts of my life at that moment. And one of, the huge, one of my huge challenges in life is in the midst of making all this music to be present enough with everyone else. I mean, my wife is taking photographs of plants right now and my sons are playing, our sons are playing like, I don't know, Minecraft or Mario or something. And I'm talking with you on the phone. 
but like just being present enough in a moment. And there are some songs that I've had like percolating in the back of my head or just thoughts I've, I've been sticking on for decades. And I'm like, you know, that'd make a good song because it's something that I've continually being processed or being processing. And it helps me then process it by putting it out in the form of a song. Yeah. That's incredible, man. And, and, and I'm assuming too, that you're a basketball fan, man. When you look at like an album, like Glide Drexler, you know, you have songs like Roy Tarpley and Buck Williams, you know, like looking at some mm -hmm. of those great nineties players, man, like, um, you know, how big of a fan are you, man? And like, what, what, what inspiration can you draw from, um, from the NBA and basketball in general to, to your craft? Um, I was a huge fan. Like I, when I moved to the States in 88, I was skateboarding after skateboarding. Uh, there was basketball. I was awful at it, but I was tall. So I played with my friends. And then I discovered that, wow, there's, there, there's basketball games on TV. Mm. And then I started watching basketball on TV and became a huge Knicks fan. And then when they lost to the Rockets, when uh, the OJ car chase was cut in, yeah, like that, that, killed, that, that destroyed me as a fan. Like I, I could no longer live and die with the team because I died with that team and it was agonizing. Yeah. So yeah. like, that is like basketball was a huge part of my life. But then as I went from basketball, you know, I started like, I went from skateboarding to basketball and basketball to rap. And I've basically stuck with rap the longest, but I still have so many core memories attached to those days of watching NBA on TNT, like back to backs, like having, one of those big, like one pound bags of, <clears throat> excuse me, like M&Ms and just like eating it while watching these games. Man, you know, that, that music too, I can, I can still hear the NBC, the TNT, like all that music, man, in my head. Yeah, like, or Ahmad Rashad saying like, he, like on NBA, what was it, NBA Inside Stuff on Saturday mornings, he's like, and here's a, here's a song from my favorite band. And every band was his favorite band. <laughs> he was the best man yeah like, it, it cracks me up to think of someone so affable like that like being close friends with Jordan like Oakley I can see because yeah. Oakley's like salty and stuff and I love Oakley man you know being a huge Knicks fan of that era but yeah just like so many of my core memories and getting to the age I am I can't help but be reflective of where I am where I have been and not trying to get too stuck on where I'm going, but being here, that I'll start thinking of making like a, oh, there's a Jerome Kersey reference. There's a, there's a Richard Dumas song. There's a this, like all these things that stuck with me through the years, and I'm able to almost have this scattershot diary of my life experiences spread over all these songs and various albums. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and some incredible, you know, athletes, man, and some really sad stories too, like the Roy Tarpleys and the the Richard Dumases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, that's heartbreaking. And I and when, you know, like I said, like the melancholy of that instrumental drew to me, 
And so while that song may wander many places, it ends at, you know, if only you would have been reachable by Coach Lucas. You know, yeah. just the possibilities and the potential. Like, I was looking at potential album titles for upcoming projects that I have mostly done, and I'm like, when's Earl Manigault going to be one of them? Yeah. You know, because hopefully, like, someone will then, like, listen to it and see it and be like, what's that? And then they go check out the story and be like, whoa, there's a whole story behind this person. Not my music, but my music being the avenue by which they can then do their own research and then come up with their own journey of understanding, you know, who that person was. Yeah. Why that person is referenced. Man, and, you, and you know, I'll tell you this, like, I don't have a ton of experience, you know, in, you know, with, you know, athletes or you know sports journalism but i i did grow up being able to hoop a little bit and pick up games with lloyd daniels and man what a, oh man for, yeah, yeah. dude uh yeah wow yeah the bullet fragment in his shoulder and all yeah no like you could see yeah, like, the scars like dude's incredible though like great guy like you know and, wow and just like in awe I'm like man that's lloyd daniels right there mm-hmm yeah, I don't know who I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was um, uh, Ruben. Uh, what is it? Uh, Rhyme pays or guy who's super dope building community with playlists and all that. I feel super bad. I can't think of his oh, name. Oh, check the Not check the rhyme. Yeah, check the rhyme. And I want to say he had done a retweet of like you know best starting five. What if? Mm. And I was like, I was like Lloyd Daniels, you know Earl Manigault. Um, oh God, who else? Oh damn. Uh, Bo, no, no, not Bo Kimball. Len Bias. Uh, crap. But basically all these people who, who had so much potential and weren't able to realize it on a basketball court. Yeah. I got a song on my, um, I've got a song on another album I've got coming up, a project produced by EDS called Most Anything of Value. I just got the artwork for that last night, and there's a song about dead basketball players. Hmm. You know, like, you know, what is it? Uh, Terry DeHair, like, uh, oh gosh, like all these all these various basketball players and what they meant to me and how they still exist even though they're gone. Man, yeah, it's it's so sad when you think about like like I like I get nostalgia, man, going through those like '90s basketball cards, you know, like like dang, mm -hmm. like I remember this guy, like this guy was incredible, like what happened to him now, like, um, you know, because a lot of these guys you never hear from them again, and dude, it's like Victor your career Page. caps out at like thirty, thirty-five. Mm -hmm. Dude, have you do you remember Victor Page? Victor Page. Um, Page was from Georgetown. On the same team as Iverson in Georgetown. Yeah, Georgetown. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever look up what happened to him? No, no. Ooh, man. If 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 you want a story of uh, just sorrow, like look up Victor Page, man. Like, like I I was convinced he was going to be like huge in the league or whatever, you know, because he and Iverson were just like flying all over the court. Iverson went and killed it. Victor Page, hardship, hardship, hardship. Man, yeah, that's that's terrible, man. Like I, I like, 
Yeah, because I can remember him at Georgetown, man. I remember that name. Like, I remember seeing him, Mm -hmm. you know, when I tune into Georgetown games. I was in high school at the time or middle Mm -hmm. school. I forget, but like like 98, yeah, like middle high school. And, I mean, all the potential in the world. Yeah, man. Speaking of uh, college basketball on a less depressing note, like one of my favorite college basketball players who actually panned out because a whole lot of them didn't, like Lou Rowe, who I was a huge fan of, but, you know, he's yeah. too small or whatever. UMass, right? But um, Dwayne, what? He, yeah, UMass. He was with uh, Dana Dingle, uh, Marcus Camby. Yeah. Gosh, I can't remember who else was on that squad. I think that was that was Calipari early on, right? I think it was, yeah, like right like right before all the, the hoopla. Like yeah, that. yeah, but when when he was starting out, but like that was that was my college squad. But one of my uh, going back to the less depressing things is one of the few players I was a huge fan of who actually became something was Dwayne Wade. I was mm. like, man, like I'd watch him play at Marquette. I'm like, this dude just understands how to play basketball. Like he understands spacing and just has a feel for the game. But I got to be honest, man. Like. I did not see him becoming the dominant, incredible, like Hall of Famer that he became. But man, it was so dope for me to see that and be proven wrong. Like, hey, here's someone I really like. Like, like who, like who else did I really like? Uh, dude out of Georgetown, Yinkadare. Yeah, yeah, went to the Nets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and had like almost no assists ever. <laughs> man. I remember, like, oh, I seem to always get his cards in packs, man. I was like, like I had a ton of his cards, and it's like they're not probably worth too much these days. No, man. But, yeah, like, I think it just, like, as far as basketball, it all goes back to stories. Yeah. Like, like what is the story of a person? Whether it's, you know, Ian Gadare who got to the league and then, you know, left and died early, or if it's, or if it's Brian Williams slash Bison Dele, you know, mm-hmm. deciding that, you know, his heart was not in the game and his life was bigger than the game, which is something I super respect. And then, you know, his tragic passing. And yeah. Like all these things, all these things are stories and it's the stories that intrigue me. And, 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 and I'm that... lucky where I'm a point in my life where like those bad stories, those are not my stories. But they're incredible but still stories. Thinking about like what could have been. Yeah, and basketball lends itself nicely to that too, because I mean, there's it's the professional sports league with the fewest amount of players, so you really do get to know the players more. There's no like helmets where you, you actually know what the players look like. Um, yeah, and and so I think I think that lends itself really nicely to that, like. Um, because I've noticed my kids too, even like being out in California, we're really close to the um, Angel Stadium, and so we we can mm-hmm. go to those games for like two bucks, three bucks a ticket, and so just them being able to dive into to some of the, the the players' histories, like understanding who Shohei is and Mike Trout, and and some of the, like the more role players, um, they've been able to identify with certain players and really like kind of take take their their habits or their things and try to put it in their own lives which has been pretty cool but it's like sports has definitely been that medium of like you know kind of understanding what excellence can look like how do you how do you how do you achieve excellence but also like mm-hmm. um 
that understanding too like because because we've run into players at different times and it's like that these guys are humans like they're people like they're incredible athletes but like they're yes. they're sons and fathers and um mm-hmm. you know all you know they're they're interested in other stuff like they're not just baseball players 24 7. no i mean that's like that's the thing with rap when i was when i was first a fan of rap and i was like finally found a lord finesse cd and like the 20th place that I'd managed to check for Lord Finesse CDs and I'm listening to it and I'm like, man, Lord Finesse is so hip hop. I'm like, how does Lord Finesse wash dishes and make it hip hop? Like, yeah, does he have a special magical technique? Because back then there was the distance between, you know, being a fan and a musician or an artist. But then I'm like, no, he's just a regular person who happens to, like, I I was introduced to him as, like, your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. And so I'm like, okay, I got to study this guy. And this is way before I ever thought I would rap. I just loved rap. But just realizing that, like, rap is something I do. It's my passion. I love it. It is not my identity. It is part of my identity. I mean, I got my teacher name. I've got my given name. I got my rap name. Like, I got all these different names, and each of them have a different part and a different role in my life. That's huge, man. That's amazing. Like, I I appreciate your perspective on that, too, because there's a lot of stuff that you're saying, man, that I can just identify with on my own, my own, with my own work, too. Um, You know, when you look towards 2024, too, like, you know, you have incredible projects lined up, you know, you're going to be doing your thing as, as a dad and husband and as a, as a teacher, man, like what are your big goals, man? When you look at like, you know, the new year, um, you know, it's December 30th today, this interview will come out early January. Like what are your goals, man? When you look at what you want to get done and, and accomplish in 2024. Um, rap wise, 2024 looks like me completing my share of a handful of projects and continuing on the the rap goals would be making sure they all come to fruition and dropping a project a month and as far as life goals just trying to be balanced and present enough and be chill be patient with my kids and just be present 